0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. There's a test run for the 2020 census in Providence County, Rhode Island and for the large Latino community there, the past few weeks have been a whirlwind. People are
2: are getting the message and giving the message to each other. If somebody knocks on your door, do not open the door.
1: From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. coming up how one community brought their census numbers up in the past and how they plan to measure up this time. Plus, we'll look at how a trade war could impact New England industries and how rising prices on Maine lobster might seem like a bad thing for Chinese consumers.
3: But the people who are looking to to use lobster to show their neighbors and employees that they've made it might not mind the higher price tag at all
1: and the handmaid's tale returns for a second season set in dystopian new england
3: the essence of what a witch is
4: is an enemy that looks like you but is secretly connected to evil and doing evil against you
1: it's getting scary next Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. The next U.S. Census isn't until 2020, but already there's controversy over a plan to ask all U.S. households about their citizenship status, a question the critics say puts an uncomfortable spotlight on immigrants who are not citizens. We're looking at how communities across New England are responding, and we'll start in Hartford. Connecticut Public Radio's Vanessa Della Torre has our story.
5: Bernie Michael originally came from somewhere else, in his case, Ohio. But for over two decades now, Michael's lived in Asylum Hill, a Hartford neighborhood that's become a resettling area for immigrants and refugees. So many that a group of neighbors formed a welcoming committee to make them feel more at home.
1: So it's become kind of a part of the culture. It's no surprise to see people, you know, from all different places coming together.
5: The last U.S. census in 2010 showed Asylum Hill as a microcosm of racial diversity. In more recent years, Michael says he's noticed newcomers from the Congo, Iraq, Syria, Thailand, and Nepal.
1: It started, I think, with the Somalis just about 10 or 11 years ago.
5: While the welcoming committee steers clear of asking neighbors about their citizenship, The 2020 census is planning to ask that question, and that has stirred mixed reactions across the country and in communities like Hartford. The census is designed as a count of every living person in the U.S., with massive implications for funding and representation in Congress. For 2020, the government says it also wants to know the number of U.S. citizens so it can enforce the Voter Rights Act. But Lynn Williamson isn't buying it. She often works with immigrants as a cultural arts director at the Connecticut Historical Society. She thinks that adding the question could intimidate non-citizens into skipping the census.
4: I was afraid, um, and we've, we've heard people's comments about it, that it might worry some people about actually uh, filling that out and they might not want to and then we're not going to get an accurate count of who's living here. You know I have a concern that it might be a subtle way to to target people or pinpoint people.
5: The Census Bureau says the data it collects is used for statistical purposes and not to identify individual people. But even among immigrants with green cards Williamson says there can be a mistrust of government forms and fear of having their legal status taken away. Last Thursday, she and the Asylum Hill Welcoming Committee put on a showcase event on the resilience of refugees.
4: I think we should be as open-hearted as we can be, because to me, that's what America
5: is. George Annan Kingsley, the MC of the event, is an artist from the Ivory Coast in West Africa. He came to Hartford under political asylum in 2013.
0: Well, I was speaking too much uh, politics and uh, <laughs> I needed to get out.
5: Anon Kingsley takes issue with immigrants who lose touch with their culture once they get to the U.S. But as for the citizenship question, that doesn't bother him. He believes a country has the right to know the legal status of its residents.
0: This is my way of living. You need to have paper before going to somebody's country. And when your time is up, you just go, get out of there. You know. So for me, putting where I'm coming from on the paper, it doesn't matter for me.
5: Another Asylum Hill resident, Saku So, says telling the Census Bureau that she's a citizen would be a proud moment for her. She's of Korean heritage and came to Hartford 10 years ago from a refugee camp in Thailand. So says she became a U.S. citizen and is now in college studying nursing. This is my country. I feel like U.S. is my country. But the way Adam Romo sees it, the question adds another layer of angst for immigrants. He runs the Mariachi Academy of New England and says many of his students come from Mexican families who have fled or been deported under the Trump administration.
0: We had some families taken apart early on when this started happening. When Trump was elected, um, there was a father that was deported in Bridgeport. Our our Bridgeport campus got hit the worst. Um, We lost at least three or four families. So there's a lot of worry out there already.
5: Nationally and in Connecticut, about 7% of residents are not U.S. citizens. That's according to estimates from a much smaller sample that the Census Bureau conducts every year. The last time the Bureau asked about citizenship on its decennial survey that goes out to every household was 1950. Now, whether or not the census reinstates the question could be decided by the courts. A multi-state coalition that includes Connecticut announced that it's suing the federal government to block the question from the 2020 census. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Vanessa De la Torre. So the
1: 2020 census is in 2020, right? Well, if you live in Providence County, Rhode Island, you might get an envelope in the mail two years early. That's because the county is the site of the only test run for the 2020 census. So what is a test run exactly? Well, we're going to ask Sam Adler-Bell. He's a senior policy associate at the Century Foundation and a writer at The Intercept. Sam, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. Explain exactly what a census dress rehearsal is.
2: Well, what a census dress rehearsal is supposed to be is a full test of the entire census, its methodology, with a fully funded outreach, advertising, and promotions program. Um, And the purpose of it is to make sure that this massive civic undertaking is going to be successful. Um, In most years, in most census years, they do multiple tests in different counties across the country um, that are often representative of different potentially hard-to-count communities. Um, And this year... um, instead of doing multiple tests, they're only doing one. And they're doing that one test in Providence County, Rhode Island.
1: And why did they pick Providence County, Rhode Island?
2: Well, Providence, um, the county is is supposed to be representative demographically of the whole country. And there's an extent to which that's true. I mean, it has a representative number of minorities of immigrant population. Um, it has an urban area uh, around a couple different cities. And um, but it isn't representative in every sense. They canceled tests that were supposed to be in West Virginia um, and another in Washington State, and those tests would have tested um, in more rural communities, um, which will not necessarily be captured by the Providence test.
1: If part of what this dress rehearsal is supposed to do is try out the challenges in counting hard-to-count communities, explain a bit more about what the challenges are in Providence.
2: Well, so... In my piece, um, I focused in particular on a small city north of Providence City that's called Central Falls. Um, It's about a mile uh, square mile, um, about 20,000 people live there. Um, It has a very high rate of poverty, um, about 72% of the population speaks a, a language other than English. Um, it's a, a third immigrants, many of them undocumented, and it's a lot of people living on top of each other in a small area. So that means many multi multiple occupancy homes. Um, and all of those things make it more challenging for census takers to get an accurate count. Um, and every year, there's usually an undercount in minority communities, immigrant communities, among children under five. Um, And the consequences of an undercount means that all of those communities are going to be underserved by, you know, federal uh, money that should be going to them at higher rates. And as well, they're going to be denied political representation they would get under the census otherwise.
1: So a, a big part of these tests is building confidence and trust within the community. Uh, In your piece, you you tell the story of Marta Martinez, who was a Census Statewide Partnership Specialist, uh, and you shared some of the recordings from interviews that you did with her. I want to listen to a little bit of Martinez detail some of the efforts to build trusts with the community before the 2010 Census. Here she is.
6: I selected, um, you know, three with the census was calling trusted voices Yeah. people that um, and, and normally they told us to find one person and I yeah. you know decided just to get three because they each had a different role yeah. um, and 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 that was how we were able to concentrate on the communities that
1: had been undercounted previously give us a little bit more detail on, on what she's talking about there
2: well, so if we think back to 2010, um, you know, we may think this is a pretty politically um, contentious time uh, in which immigrants are particularly terrified because of what the Trump administration is doing um, with ICE. Um, 2010 was also a time where there was a ramping up of the number of deportations um, under the Obama administration. That was the beginning of what was called the secure communities era in uh, immigration enforcement. Um, and at the time, people in, uh, you know, immigrant communities, Latino communities in Rhode Island were extremely nervous um, and they weren't particularly keen um, to talk to a uh, government official knocking on their door. And so it was a challenge, especially in um, cities like Central Falls and Providence, um, to make sure that people realized first of all, that they would be safe if they responded to the census. And second of all, that, you know... That it has an enormous impact on whether they're going to have um, the right amount of you know federal funding, whether they were going to be representative, represented in Congress and at their state legislative levels, um, and what Marta did ex- extraordinarily well was identify leaders who were trusted in their communities um, and give them you know the the free reign to to formulate this message about why the census is important um, that would resonate with immigrant communities and other communities in Providence. Um, And, you know, what's concerning this time around is that this test is going on right now, and none of the people that I spoke to, um, including Marta, including Pablo Rodriguez, um, Ana Cano Morales, um, these trusted voices, they haven't been contacted by the Census Bureau to participate in this census test and make sure that it's successful in the way that they were able to be successful in 2010.
1: And there really was success. Back in 2000 census, uh, it was showing that uh, the city was only about 48 percent Latino when everyone there knew it was more, but because of their efforts, uh, the participation and therefore the numbers went up quite a bit in 2010, Right.
2: That's right. And it, and it really represents, um, in a really tangible way, what makes the census so important. Um, because in Central Falls, this little um, city, uh, this little Latino city, um, they had a uh, political representation. Their, their city council and their mayor were mostly white, um, and they weren't really being represented. The Latino community was not being represented. Um, after the census, once they had this number to point to and say, look, we're a Latino city, um, it was helpful in building these campaigns um, to, rep- to get people elected who were representative of the community. And now this Central Falls City Council is majority immigrant It um, has people from Central America, from South America, Syrian American. I mean, in 2013, um, James Deosa was elected at the age of 27 um, to be the first Latino mayor of Central Falls.
1: Maybe you can talk more about uh, specifics of the fear that you've heard from this community uh, about previous uh, census counts, just how much fear there was about people showing up at their door and asking them a bunch of questions.
2: Well, well, one thing I can say is we do know that we're in a particularly contentious um, political environment right now. I mean, that's obvious to us, but the Census Bureau itself has conducted qualitative research um, in immigrant communities about their willingness to fill out the census form. Um, that was done in 2017, and they found unprecedentedly high um, fears, confusion. Um, people are are getting the message and giving the message to each other if somebody knocks on your door, do not open the door. Um, if there's a you know, if somebody asks you to fill out a form, don't fill out that form. I mean, that's the that's the message that the Census Bureau itself was hearing from immigrant communities, and that was before the it was certain that the citizenship question was going to be on the form. Um, one you know, telling anecdote that I found in my reporting um, was that during that 2017 survey an enumerator walked um, up to a a group of um, mobile homes that were being occupied by by uh, Hispanic immigrant families they knocked on the door they could hear that there were people inside uh, but they didn't come uh, to the door Um, they walked away and they left some information at some different some different doors and decided I'll go back and see Um, and when they came back Um, that mobile home was being driven away um, by the people who lived there. They literally drove their home away um, to avoid having to answer questions from a government official.
1: And how much are state officials in Rhode Island concerned about this? Is there some level at which the the state or the municipal officials might be saying, look, we we need to make sure that we, we get this right in our communities?
2: They are saying that, and they're doing their best um, to encourage people to fill out this census form, this test form. Um, But it's extraordinarily unfortunate, the timing of how this happened, because the census, the test census form arrived on people's doorsteps. And then a week later, there was a massive news story across the country about how the Trump administration was sabotaging the census um, by including a citizenship question on that form. Um, so people got home, and not having known that this test was happening, because there was no advertising for it, they looked at this form and thought, oh, this is what they're talking about. And the important thing to understand about the census this year is that it's being conducted Conducted primarily online they're asking people to log into a website and fill out the census as the first round Um, so that means that people looked at this form and they and they thought am I gonna go online and they're gonna ask me if I'm a citizen or not Um, a lot of people were pretty freaked out and that's what I heard from um, community leaders on the ground from um, legislators uh, from city leaders Um, and I would say that you know for, for the community organizations in Rhode Island, for the national civil rights organizers who are paying very close attention to the census, um, there's somewhat of a question about whether it makes sense uh, to pick up the slack to self-fund uh, an effective outreach program for this um, census test. And at the national level, there's some concern that if civil society um, fills the gap from the Trump administration's negligence, then it won't really communicate fully the level of crisis we're in with the census right now. It'll suggest to the administration that, well, we don't have to fund this advertising program because people on the ground will do it for us.
1: Sam Adler-Bell is a senior policy associate at the Century Foundation and a writer at The Intercept. He's been covering the 2020 census trial run in Rhode Island. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. It was great to be here. The mayor of Springfield, Massachusetts, has been trying to shut down a church housing an undocumented woman from Peru who is about to be deported. Church officials are giving her what they call sanctuary. Houses of worship are less likely to be entered by immigration officials. And while Mayor Dominic Sarno made it clear months ago his city is not a sanctuary city, the First Amendment may block him from getting his way. New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman reports.
7: Last month when South Congregational Church allowed Peruvian Gisela Callazo to live there, church leaders say they were compelled to do so as part of their religious mission. South Congregational is one of hundreds of houses of worship in Massachusetts under the roof of the United Church of Christ. UCC's Kelly Gallagher says their mission is clearly stated in the Gospel of Matthew. To feed the hungry, to visit the homeless, to visit those imprisoned and set them free and to welcome the stranger. That is our call right there. That verse drives South Congregational to welcome all and provide sanctuary, Gallagher says. That's not how Springfield Mayor Dominic Sarno sees it. More than a year ago, Sarno was one of the first elected leaders to publicly state his town was not a sanctuary city, a term which generally describes cities that don't cooperate with federal immigration officials. Sarno says South Congregational has made a political move. Plus, it goes against his non-sanctuary edict. Describing the church last month, Sarno told Channel 22 News,
0: They're not a house of worship anymore now.
7: They're not a house of worship anymore now. The church is still open. Sarno has tried unsuccessfully to shut it down by seeking building code violations, and he's still trying to take away the church's tax-exempt status. We asked him several times in the last few days if he would comment further, and he declined to.
1: As far as
0: we know, there is no other mayor that has responded in this way been
6: so bold with his statements.
7: No other mayor in the country, says "Orin Nimney from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Economic Justice. The Boston-based organization has been around since President John F. Kennedy requested private lawyers use their training to pursue civil rights. And when the Springfield Church's own lawyer, Christine Tatro, heard Sarno's comments. No longer a house of worship. I, I don't
4: even know how to respond to that.
7: Because religious freedom is protected by the First Amendment, government can't regulate faith. Attorney Mark Stern has spent a career looking at church-state issues.
8: The mayor, in saying, well, if they're housing illegal aliens or undocumented aliens, they cease to be a church, is simply wrong as a matter of fundamental first principles of the First Amendment, and, and spectacularly wrong.
7: Stern is at the American Jewish Committee in New York City. He says clashes between churches and the regnant political culture are not untypical, but he can understand why it's infuriating for people who've gone through the federal immigration system, like Sarno's own family did, to watch current immigration scenarios unfold. But Stern also says there's a 1,500-year history with Christian churches in particular serving as sources of sanctuary, and there's the human reason not to live by the rule of law. If this disagreement ever goes to court... Judges would measure whether a church's decision is motivated by religious belief. And the only thing the courts test, Stern says, is the sincerity of the belief, not its, quote, truth.
8: And not whether it appears to the observer as rational. Uh, Supreme Court famously said people may believe what they cannot prove.
7: Gerald Duquette has lived in Springfield almost his entire life, and he knows the mayor, and he's not sure why Sarno got involved in an issue he could have easily avoided. And even as a Sarno supporter, Duquette says, the mayor's actions are over the top. He didn't sort of say, as a matter of law, we should be vigilant and make sure the laws are followed. He, in fact, took extra steps in the direction
1: of... We're going to get this church.
7: Duquette, a political scientist at Central Connecticut State University, says he can't dismiss the possibility that Sarno, as the son of Italian immigrants, has been offended by the church's actions. Though he says it's unfair to compare the mayor to President Trump, as some have. For whatever reason Sarno has taken on this church, Duquette says it's not as a stepping stone. These are not the moves of a mayor who wants to be, say, a congressman. I assume he wants to run again for mayor, and I assume that he sees the only threat to reelection coming from his left. And that was evident this week when the city council unanimously voted in favor of an order explained here by council president Michael Fenton. Uh.
6: No mayor
0: passes any edict telling any church what to do, particularly as it relates to sanctuary.
7: When the city council first proposed this, Sarno restated on the city's website that he fully supports legal immigration. My administration has a fiduciary responsibility, he said, not to jeopardize potentially millions of dollars of federal funding by becoming a sanctuary city. And he urged the federal government to come up with a, quote, plausible, concrete solution to this issue and stop dropping it in the laps of municipal government. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman.
1: Coming up, the global economics of lobster. It's Next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Starting with steel, the Trump administration has imposed tariffs on a number of products coming from abroad, including some 13,000 Chinese goods. China responded with their own list, and tariffs as high as 25%. We're taking a look at two industries in New England that could be impacted by tariffs, and we're going to start in an unusual place, the hyper-local craft beer market. As part of the craft beer boom, you see more shelves filled with cans than bottles. They're lighter, they're cheaper to ship, they're easier to recycle, and they're a bit cooler. But if the cost of aluminum cans goes up, that could get passed on to the consumer. Vermont Public Radio's Henry Epps spoke to Justin Heilenbach. He's president of Citizen Cider in Burlington, Vermont.
8: When, you know, craft producers started using cans, cans became associated with craft and became cool. And so now they are like, you know, sort of a hallmark of a craft brand.
0: That's Justin Heilenbach, the president and co-founder of Citizen Cider. I met him at the company's canning facility in Burlington to talk about how the new tariffs might affect his business. In addition to aluminum cans, there's also concern around the price of kegs, which are made out of steel. Right now, Citizen Cider owns its kegs, but if the price of imported steel kegs increases, Island Box says they might switch to leasing kegs from a middleman.
8: Or we may pass it on in the cost of a keg. It's not ideal because the draft market is, is hyper-competitive, and it's all about price. So it's in your interest to keep the price low of a keg that you can send to a bar, yes. that, and they'll put it on tap? Yes. You know, we buy a lot more cans than we do kegs. So, uh, but but it'll ultimately impact everybody if that happens, uh, all craft producers.
0: So um, we've seen a little bit of the, uh, the canning operation. What are you thinking right now about the impact of uh, aluminum and steel tariffs that are ramping up?
8: At this point, it's more that there's uncertainty. And when there's uncertainty, it's hard to plan and hard to uh, to think out into the future and plan a business model that's going to make sense. I mean, pricing in the beverage market is so competitive that you're getting down to pennies um, when you price a product. And so if, you know, we're not sure in a year if if the price of cans is going to be 10%, 20% higher than it is today, and we make a pricing adjustment to be more competitive in the market, we may be kind of setting ourselves up for failure next year. So there's already enough uncertainty within any industry, and this just adding another layer to that.
0: So how do you think the adding tariffs um, to you know, imported steel and aluminum, the goal being to increase the use of US steel, mm. How does that line up with your values?
8: Well, it it doesn't really because we already are doing that. (laughs) I mean, we weren't looking for, uh, you know, a tariff to encourage us to work with American manufacturers. We already made that decision because, um, you know, we're rooted in agriculture and we work with a lot of local suppliers for for fruit. And we've applied that same mentality to everything that we purchase. That's VPR's Henry App
1: talking to Justin Heilenbach of Citizen Cider. Okay, this trade war might mean more at the package store, but how else might it hit our pocketbook? Among the U.S. products to be hit with Chinese tariffs, pork and wine, but not in that list for now, lobsters. That's good news for Maine lobstermen. Two-thirds of live lobsters sold outside the U.S. go to Asia. We talked to Penny Overton. She covers the lobster and marijuana industries for the Portland Press-Herald, to talk about the link between Maine and China. Penny Overton, welcome to NEXT, thanks for joining us.
3: Hi, thanks John, it's nice to be here.
1: Explain just how important the China market is for the Maine lobster industry.
3: It's become increasingly important. Um, Obviously we uh, are looking here in Maine to uh, find anyone who's willing to pay top dollar and the Chinese middle class have developed a real taste for um, the lobster as a center of the plate protein, and that's kind of the lingo that they use. It's a really, it's um, a, a wealth symbol for them. Um, you know, they've made it, they've arrived, they've. Um, are able to afford something that in coastal cities are actually has become a little bit more affordable. But when you get more inland, you can have them go for as much as one hundred and fifty or two hundred dollars.
1: My, my goodness. So, so that's really expensive. And, and, and how new is this market? You say it, it really has to do with the Chinese middle class developing a taste for it. I mean, is this a, a market that we expect to just grow over time or is this a, like a bit of a flash in the pan?
3: Well, if I knew that, I'd be really rich. So, um, but I mean, obviously, markets change um, for years, for decades. Actually, the European Union has always been the um, strongest um, international importer of of U.S. lobster and. When you're talking about U.S. lobster, you're really talking about Maine because 83 or so percent of all lobster that heads out of the country to any place but Canada, which oftentimes does our own packing for us. But any place that's going actually overseas, it's it's going to be going in the past to the EU. Um, there, they've slacked off a bit. And so the lobster dealers here were looking to build markets in other places, especially around about, I'd say, 2012, there was a... Kind of one of those freak of nature kind of things. We had an early molt. Just so happens, Maine lobsters are generally new shell lobsters. Um, that means that when they arrive earlier than usual and they shed their shell, they get into that stage where the Maine lobstermen start catching them in shore. Then suddenly the lobster market was flooded in 2012 with an unexpectedly large and most importantly, early lobster kind of crop, actually. That's the way it's looked at here. And so suddenly the dealers had to figure out what to do with all those lobsters. It was a hard year for lobstermen here and for the dealers, the whole supply chain. Um, but it it sent U.S. lobster dealers abroad looking for new markets. And they did a really great job. You had people, I can't imagine the frequent flyer miles they must have racked up in Asia, um, you know, in the uh, Middle East, Qatar, to buy all kinds of areas like that, looking to build new markets, and it's paid off in spades with the Asian
1: market. So right now, this trade war with China is is kind of simmering. We're not exactly sure where all of these tariffs and threats of tariffs are going to land. But but let's say that this intensifies and China imposes uh, a, a, a tariff on on lobsters. Um, how would that impact things where you are? A lot of U.S. goods have tariffs you know, um,
3: levied when they are sent abroad, and um, those markets aren't dead. Um, so they don't think that the lobster market would – it wouldn't die. It, it would be um, – it might decrease it. It might um, slow the growth. But even in, a, um, in any market, a tariff won't necessarily kill it. However, um, it will cut into profits, and that's bad. Uh, but the the one thing that makes this particular product a little bit different, um, you know, I've asked a few um, folks here in Maine who study the lobster economics to to kind of chime in on this, and they've told me that it could be that because this is a wealth symbol in China that actually adding a little bit of extra money um, on the price tag may not impact this product as much as it might others. Um, They've cited a couple of examples of other products, U.S. exports in Asian countries that were considered to be wealth symbols like Johnny Walker whiskey, that when they actually, the company was able to negotiate um, trade benefits and reduce the tariffs and the price of Johnny Walker went down, that suddenly it was not as sought after a a gift because it it just didn't cost as much. Now, you know, you'd have the Chinese middle class is 300 million people. It's, you know, it's larger than most countries and and it's growing. So you might see that the newly arrived middle class might choose another protein like maybe Russian snow crab or something like that. Um, But the people who are looking to to use lobster to show their neighbors and friends and employers and employees that, that they've made it might not mind the higher price tag at all.
1: So, so really, a $200 lobster might not be a bad thing.
3: Um, well, it would be for me, but yes.
1: <laughs> it, it would be for you and probably a lot of people in the Chinese middle class. I, I want to ask you about a visit that, that you got there from a, a Chinese deputy consul. This was happening just around the time of this trade war. What, what came out of this uh, of this visit?
3: Um, So the uh, deputy counsel for the the, um, People's Republic of China in New York, um, Mei Feng zheng I might have mangled that a bit. Um, She was a lovely woman. She and and one of her um, associates – just so happened to be hitting Maine, uh, for the first time, um, since actually she'd been in New York on the day that the Chinese government announced its retaliatory tariffs. And of course, all of Maine was holding its breath. Will our lobsters be on the list? Will our blueberries, all the things that we, you know, export and everybody was pretty relieved when it wasn't on there. But, you know, she made it very clear that, um, they understand that, uh, the main market is very dependent and increasingly so on china and she spent a lot of time you know trying to convince our our editors especially that that we would want to write editorials that would explain to the trump administration how important the lobster market was and how much the chinese people love it and how much they would hate to have to stop buying it um, you know, with a tariff attached. Now that was, you know, she was lovely, but there was an awful lot of veiled threats that were, that were included in that, obviously looking for, to agitate a bit and looking for a favorable editorial because, of course, President Trump is going to be reading the Portland Press-Herald editorial page and doing exactly what we tell him to do. But, you know, she was, she was emphasizing the importance of the two markets. Um, and so I think that that was, um, the message was clear,
1: I'm wondering how the lobster industry there is looking at their future as we've been reporting and Maine Public Radio has been reporting now for years. This boom in in lobster in the Gulf of Maine right now has an awful lot to do with climate change, creating very specific conditions for it. But I think everyone within this this industry understands that this will change over time. I guess I'm wondering how the people who are uh, in Maine's lobster industry there are viewing their future in terms of the availability of lobsters to fish and send overseas and also this burgeoning new market over there that will want to consume so much of whatever you send.
3: Wow, that's a, that's a big question. Um, one thing that's become clear to me since I've started <laughs> covering this this industry is that they're not overfished. It's not, that is not an issue with this particular species. It's, it's that they are moving and following, you know, the, the proper water temperature, the one that just the right one for them. And the Gulf of Maine is warming very fast, faster than I think almost, I think there's one other body of water and in the world that's warming faster than the Gulf of Maine. So the lobsters are, are moving. It's, all kinds of theories about why, whether it's because they, um, the food that they eat is moving. And so they're following that. Um, The, you know, the thermal habitat is pushing them out. You know, we don't know if it's actually if they're declining or not. The the catch this year went down, but we also had some pretty lousy weather, and that can also affect the catch. Um, and and the other thing is that there was a drop this year, a pretty significant drop. Like a the value of the market dropped by like ninety nine million dollars or so, and that's that's a lot. If you compare that to say just like five or six years ago you know, it would it would not have been a drop at all. They've really seen a boom over the last five or six years. Now, whether that boom would be able to continue, I don't think anybody expects that. But they do believe that, right, you know, for a good long while, they're going to be able to see a lobster harvest that's similar to what it was like seven or eight years ago for a long time. And that sustained a lot of fishermen at that rate, without even having a big A big consumer like China interested in the product. So it's changing, but I don't think anybody expects it to disappear anytime soon.
1: Penelope Overton covers two interesting economies, lobster and marijuana for the Portland Press-Herald. Penny, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it.
3: Oh, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks.
1: New England's seacoast is home to some of the earliest history of European settlers anywhere in the country. Believe it or not, much of that history is still being uncovered. But now climate change and rising seas are adding new urgency to those efforts. Jason Moon joined a researcher for a hike to a centuries-old archaeological site in New Hampshire that is literally washing away. UNH anthropologist Megan
6: Howey has a map. It was made in 1635, and it shows the location of garrison houses that once stood near Great Bay in what is now Durham. Garrison houses, in case you're wondering, are a sort of fortified log cabin built by early colonial settlers in New England. But Howie says even though we've had this map for almost 400 years, until recently no one's actually gone out to find the sites, to look for what may have been left behind.
9: It's pretty shocking, (laughs) so I would say... You know, the emphasis has been on the sites that would draw tourists, right? So there's a lot out there that's just completely unknown.
6: Howie is leading me through the woods to a secret archaeological site where last summer she found some of that unknown history. The site is secret because it contains artifacts and human remains that can be a target for looters. Howie and a team of volunteers discovered the location of one of the garrison houses on that map. The remains of a structure where some of the earliest Europeans to ever be in this region lived, worked, and died. But that exciting discovery came with some sobering news.
9: All right, I found it. Oh, geez, it's wet.
6: We reach the end of the forest, where a steep bank drops down to a narrow strip of sandy beach. Howie points to the ground beneath our feet. And I realize she's not showing me what's here so much as what's gone. Most of the land where the garrison house once stood has been eaten away by the rising tidal water of the bay.
9: Like quite literally washing away and, and it's gone. Whatever the artifacts, everything with it, they've been over the years just washed away.
6: All that's left is one corner of the foundation. And just a few feet away, Howie points out a couple of bricks submerged in the shallow, salty water. Oh
9: my God. Right there, yeah.
6: So, that, <laughs> so, that brick is probably from the 1600s. Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it probably just, from the chimney. Yeah, so and most of the site is lost.
9: Yeah, it's gone. It's a pretty, it was a depressing find. It was a great find, but uh, it's a bummer. <laughs> that's all I could kind of that's like that's how we felt last summer. Like, this is so cool and this is so sad.
6: After Howie found this, she wondered how many other historic sites could be at risk of a similar fate of being submerged in a rising sea or being carried away by stronger storm surges. She combined sea-level rise projections from climate scientists with the location of historic sites on the seacoast. She found that about one in seven of the region's known historic sites are at risk. But even that number could be a low estimate, because it doesn't include sites like this one, which weren't known until Howie found it just last year. And it's not just bricks that are being lost. Not far from the site of the garrison house, Howie shows me where the settlers who lived here buried their dead. It's a cemetery that contains some of the first Europeans to live in this area. And every year, the tidal waters inch closer. And it's only a matter of years before bodies probably come out of the bank, you know. In many cases, saving historic sites like this from climate change just isn't feasible. So the best how we can do is to document what's here before it's gone. It's an archaeological race against time.
9: I feel a great sense of urgency, especially after finding these sites are washing away, you know, um, Part of me thinks I'm 20 years too late (laughs) to, to the problem, you know?
6: This summer, Howie is hoping to identify more garrison sites from that map she showed me. She says she wants to find as many as possible while she still
1: can. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jason Moon in Durham, New Hampshire. Coming up, a dystopian future based on a Puritan past. It's Next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. The Handmaid's Tale, the hit Hulu show based on the novel by Margaret Atwood, returns for season two on April 25th. The show is set in a dystopian near-future New England, but it pulls inspiration from the region's Puritan past. Last year, we sat down with Rebecca Tannenbaum, a senior lecturer of history at Yale, and Kathy Cook, a professor of history at Quinnipiac University, to talk about the connections. In season one, we see the handmaids acting as spies on one another, and Rebecca gave us some insight into the history of a surveillance society in small New England towns.
4: New England towns were built so that everyone lived very close together, which is something you don't necessarily see in other parts of the uh, British colonies in North America. And part of the reason for that was a belief that God would punish a collective for the sin of one of its members. So you had to keep an eye on your neighbors and make sure that everyone was behaving correctly. And so um, having that kind of surveillance of your family, of the people who live next door to you, of the people who lived across the street from you, um, that was all a very important part of the culture and an expected part of the culture
10: Right, and you could add to that that it was, it was particularly important to those who had resettled in North America. They felt very subject to the whims of the environment, to the indigenous peoples. As uh, William Bradford said, you know, Satan hath more power in these heathen lands. There was extra fear of what could happen religiously and socially among the Puritans as they settled in North America.
1: In the original dedication to The Handmaid's Tale, um, Margaret Atwood explained that uh, one of the people that she dedicated the book to was a woman named Mary Webster, who she said was an ancestor who was (laughs) hanged for a witch in Connecticut, but she didn't die. They hadn't invented the drop yet, the part of the platform that falls away, so they hanged her but yet she lived. How much do you think that the, the history of the Salem witch trials and the lesser known but still, um, of course, very important uh, witch hangings and burnings that happened uh, here in this state of Connecticut, um, how much do you think that that plays into this, this worldview that Margaret Atwood puts forward and this, this idea that we have of what a, a Puritan-based dystopia might look like if it were to, to happen today?
4: Okay, that is a really big question. (laughs) Um, But the first thing I thought of was, I mean, the essence of what a witch is, uh, is an enemy that looks like you, that talks like you, but is secretly connected to evil and doing evil against you. And certainly in The Handmaid's Tale, there is an idea that they are eliminating what the governors of Gilead think of as evil. Um, they are seeking it out. They are, they are punishing it. They are executing it. They are driving it out. Um, so in some ways, looking for the hidden enemy within is kind of the flip side of any utopian project, right? If you want everything to be perfect, you have to drive out all the imperfections. Um, and you could also see 17th century New England as a utopian project. They are trying to create the perfect Christian society in their view and so driving out witches, driving out other kinds of evildoers, heretics, um, driving those people out was necessary to this project.
10: I would just add to that that if you're looking at who are the witches, if we want to make this analogy very clear Mm -hmm. in The Handmaid's Tale and in the uh, in particular in the television show, elderly women stand out as uh, women who are shunned, They're, they're sent away. Right, and that's an interesting connection with
4: the, uh, w- with the witch trials of the 17th century. Um, if you look at the demographics of who was tried for witchcraft, it wasn't necessarily even elderly women, but women who had just finished menopause. Most of the witches who were tried and executed were between ages 40 and 60. And a historian noted that it was like often the first accusations came as soon as she bore her last child
1: you you mentioned this idea of the wanting to create a perfect christian society it it makes me think of the the root word purity what what do each of you think exactly that that meant in 17th century america purity
4: the purity that they're referring to is to purify protestantism from all remaining remnants of catholicism everything from um liturgical elements to even eliminating Christmas. Um, Christmas was in fact outlawed in many New England towns. Um, And there's a line from a witchcraft trial where someone talks about the devil tempting her to celebrate Christmas because the devil loves Christmas. (laughs) Um, But which, you know, sounds silly to us, right? But you know, they saw Christmas and other kinds of feast days as remnants of Catholicism that they wanted to purify. Um, So Again, the word purity, I think, in modern parlance, has a sexual connotation, but here it had very much a religious connotation.
10: Right, and I I want to sort of follow up on that because it's tempting to think of it as sexual purity, Uh, and uh, you know, even H. L. Mencken, I think, it is who is quoted as saying, you know, the Puritans had the deep abiding fear that somewhere someone was having fun. (laughs) When it comes to sex, actually, Puritans were perfectly comfortable with pleasure in sex. In Mm -hmm. fact, they believed it was, as I said before, essential to conception. Um, but it was also in se- essential to a successful marriage. It was essential to having a comfortable Christian life, and it was a way to avoid the devil's snares, as they called it, of fornication. They did, of course, believe that you were not to masturbate and that you were not to have sex outside of marriage, and certainly they also didn't ble- did not condone homosexuality.
1: So we have these, these deep Puritan roots here in New England, but Something that we've explored a little bit on the show with historians in the past is that New England has in so many ways changed to be this very accepting place, this place that uh, allows people to come from all o- other parts of the world, that uh, has very uh, liberal laws on the books as far as gay marriage. It, it it feels as though New England is not the place where a dystopia like this would take hold. Uh, I, I guess I'm wondering, am, am I giving it too much credit as there's still a... a a vestige of Puritanism that that is in modern New England that, that either of you see?
10: In some ways, sure. Um, <laughs> I think that the United States continues to be a relatively restrictive and limited society in terms of how it accepts sexuality. I don't think of New England as a particularly liberal place when it comes to sexuality. So, you know, that's my first thought. The other is I think we still struggle with racial issues and we still struggle with issues around gender. So, you know, if one looks at it from a sexual angle, I think it's kind of mixed. And then I think when we think about broader issues about purity, I think the country still remains quite, and New England, I should say, more specifically remains puritanical.
4: Yeah, and I I would add two things to that. One is Just the way our politics nationally have become so polarized that both the left and the right want to purge the the dissenters from their ranks um, and still has that idea that we have to create a a pure um, republicanism or a pure leftist uh, agenda. And I think you see that on both sides and you certainly see that in New England on, on both sides of the political divide. Um, But the other thing I would say that is still with us is the physical spaces that uh, the original settlers laid out. I'm speaking here from downtown New Haven, and New Haven was the first planned community, one of its uh, claims to fame as a city. And part of that plan with the famous nine squares was to recreate what the founders thought of as the plan of Jerusalem. And they also placed the church at the exact center of the community, where it would you know, literally be the center of the community. And we still have the center church on the green here in New Haven. So even though the politics have changed, the ethnicities have changed, you still have this um, utopian project in many of the plans of New England towns.
1: Kathy Cook of Quinnipiac University, Rebecca Tenenbaum of Yale University, thank you both so much for joining me. I appreciate it.
4: It's a pleasure. Thank it's you, It's a George.
1: pleasure. Thank you. The Handmaid's Tale returns to Hulu April 25th. The executive producer of Next is Katie tolarski Production help this week from Lily Tyson and Allie Oshinsky. John Keimel at Maine Public Radio and Paul Rusty at Argo Studios in New York also helped us out. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at ToddMerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. We're also collecting stories about why young people are leaving New England in such big numbers. So if you've got a story about why you're leaving or why you're staying, you can send us an email to next at wnpr.org. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.